Hi there, I'm Corey Huff, and this is the Abundant Artist Podcast, where we teach you how to sell your art. Many of you know that I'm working on writing a book. If you've ever wanted to create, illustrate, or write a book, then this is going to be an awesome episode for you. Today's guest, Jeffrey Davis from trackingwonder.com, has been a writer since he was a teenager, and he was the first president of WordSpace, a literary arts space in Dallas co-founded the Walden Institute devoted to exploring the intersections of neuroscience, existential psychology, world mythologies, and literature. And Jeffrey now runs a company called Tracking Wonder, where he teaches people how to write books and how to get their books out there. Um, it was a very, very exciting for me to talk with Jeffrey. He's a great guy, has a, some great insight and wisdom about writing books. And his program, Your Captivating Book, is open for enrollment starting April 6th, and you can find a link to that program on the podcast page at theabundantartist.com slash podcast 10. Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's, it's my honor. Yeah, so uh, I, I think you and I have been circling around each other for a couple of years online. Uh, we have a, a fair number of mutual friends. Why don't you tell, uh, for those who aren't familiar with you and Tracking Wonder, just tell us briefly what you're about and what you do. Sure, sure. So, uh, so yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of, of Tracking Wonder Consultancy. We're a boutique uh, creative business and company. We, we focus on building business artists primarily to help them shape their captivating story, whether that's through captivating books, remarkable brand identities, or just shaping their lives intentionally. That's great. I know that many of the artists that are listening to this have expressed to me that they have an interest in creating books, and so I thought you'd be a good guest to have on today because uh, there's a lot of uh, artists out there who want to put a book out. Yeah, there are. There, there, there are a lot of people in general, but, but particularly artists too, that's right, who, who want to put their books out. And this is a really rich climate to do so. There are lots of possibilities. It gets really confusing and disorienting because there are so many possibilities. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, this is a ripe time. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to hear you say that because I was just uh, listening to, or not listening to, reading an article about that new book, uh, the, the Decline of the Creative Class. Yeah. Um, and you know, and, and that book is sort of down on creatives and and the opportunities that are out there for creatives today. And I got into a, a little discussion in, in a review of that book. Uh, with with some people in the comments section, I don't know why I do this, but <laughs> <laughs> discussion. Um, yeah, uh, but but it's you know there's so many creatives out there, and and I'll, I think uh, I don't know if it's a people who've been in the creative business for a certain amount of time or in a, or or have been doing it in a specific way, but saying you know oh all all of the opportunities are gone and the creative destruction has destroyed you know the publishers and the and the music labels and all of that, but then. Um, I'm a member of a, a Facebook group with about probably five or 600 people who are all independent publishers mm -hmm. and they're doing amazing business. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, you know, there's a, a fantasy author in that group who uh, was rejected by the big publishers and went and started publishing herself. And now she's got two trilogies out and a massive audience and a, and a, and a really hefty income. Um, so, so tell me, you know, I'd love to hear some more stories from you about why you think this is such a great time to be an author. Yeah, it's a great time and it's also, again, it's also a disorienting and, and confusing time. It's a great time because 
Uh, now, several years after uh, the 2007-2008 recession, um, it was a big disruption to traditional publishing. And I'm not one who um, sees traditional publishing as some sort of monster or, or dragon. Um, I really understand the complexities of the publishing the, the traditional publishing industry, which includes independent publishers, by the way, not just the big five in New York. So the 2007-2008 um, uh, recession, coupled with the rise of, of digital technology, uh, did a couple of things. One, it really did force the publishing industry to start taking a hard look at itself. And so I, t I attend conferences like the Book Expo and the Digital Book World, where some industry leaders are there and so I'm listening to their stories and their angst and so forth a few years ago and they're really having to rethink okay how are we serving our authors um, so that was a big shift and I can talk a little bit more about that the other thing though that of course the rise of digital technology has done is um, it's not just allowed authors to uh, put out their books on Amazon Kindle it's really given them access to greater and greater knowledge and resources to how to engage their audiences mm -hmm. and how to build a whole, whole strategy that's non-manipulative, that has real integrity, to build their audiences. So when people come to me and like, well, how can I monetize my book? I'm thinking... I'm, uh, I come back and say, that's not really the right question to ask. Oh, <laughs> right interesting. <question>. Okay. <laughs> the right question to ask is, how can you truly engage an audience and not just build up numbers but actually build up an audience on a consistent basis mm -hmm. if you start there and you do that then we can talk about the different strategies to do that and so forth that will lead to your monetizing your books so now now so just to you know shortly answer your question now there are more and more opportunities for people to engage their audiences and build up their audience. And when you look at the successful authors and when you look at the successful independent publishers and what they're doing, that's what they're doing. They're engaging their audiences and building their communities. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, and I, of course, um, full disclosure, I think everybody listening to this already knows that I'm in the middle of writing a book, but uh, <laughs> that, that was something that came up a lot when I was shopping my book around. You know, the, the publishers wanted to know how big is your audience, are they engaged, are they going to buy the book, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And it was a huge, huge help to me that I already had a platform that people were aware of. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to get into a competitive situation when I was shopping my book where multiple publishers wanted my book because I had an audience. Mm-hmm. So, yep. you know, if you're, if you're, I think if you're an artist thinking about writing a book, you know, start now engaging in your, engaging your, the people who would potentially read your book, because the, the more, more of an audience you have, the better your shot is, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, and so I, um, so here's the thing too, you know, um, about a dozen years or so when my agent said, you know, you really need to start thinking more about your platform. I have to admit, I, I laughed back at her and it was so obnoxious of me, but I was like, a platform, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not, you know, some rock star. And so, so, um, but, so I've had to reframe everything for myself and then for my clients and the organizations that I consult with. It's, it's building a platform also is, is, um, that's the metaphor we use 
And the reason it doesn't resonate with a lot of people, artists and others, is that it suggests the sort of thing that we do that lacks integrity. And I'm just going to build a platform so that more people can see me. Right. So, uh-huh. you know, the platform is you're rising above. So I like to think about it as, you know, build some sort of community where you can engage people. And if you're on a platform, you can bring them up with you. Right. So you provide opportunities for them to be engaged, for them to be creative and so forth. That's true community engagement. So let me unpack um, your answer to a little bit more for your audience. Um, Regardless of which path to publish you take, it behooves you in so many ways to start engaging your audience. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go with the traditional big five in, in, in the city and, and other, you know, they're headquartered primarily in New York City, then of course, yes, they want to know uh, for very legitimate business reasons what your audience reach and engagement is. Small publishers and independent publishers increasingly are wanting to know the same thing. Mm-hmm. So even even small presses like Coffee House Press, which just used to not even require agents, now requires agents <laughs> and wants to know that. New World Library has a whole form that you fill out to like you know how many Twitter followers that you have and so forth. Now you and I know that you could have two hundred thousand followers and just be a real jerk and not really engage your audience, but <laughs> but they still want to know those those numbers. Yeah. If you're doing self publishing then your real collaborators are the people who are going to help you spread that spread the word of your book. Crowdfunding is a really viable source. So Tracking Wonder is um, PubSlush's uh, top partner to help our clients crowdsource their books and uh, some, sometimes gain thousands of dollars back uh, with some of their expenses. But along the way, they're also engaging their audience in the process and selling books early. That's interesting. So you, I, we've talked a lot about, uh, or we're starting to talk a lot about marketing. Uh, so, and I can feel the response from some of the artists in my head, like, "Oh, why are we talking about marketing? I want to know a little more about how to get the book done." <laughs> <laughs> um, and and quite frankly, so do I. Uh, you yeah. know, I'm I'm uh, right in the midst of of the writing. So I know that you do that work with people too. So mm-hmm. so tell me a little bit about. You know, once you've got the idea, how do you get it done and get it out on on paper or in a computer or some other way? Yeah, great. Thanks for you know kind of redirecting the question too, because people can get really tripped up in the marketing. And um, so, just really briefly on that, I hear kind of very counterproductive advice to start with your marketing plan before you ever start writing the book. That's incomplete and counterproductive. And on the other hand, I hear just write from your heart, you know, whatever comes forth and, and start there, which is also somewhat incomplete. All good intentions, but incomplete. So, <laughs> so once you, you feel like you've got an idea, you know, um, about three things I suggest as, as starting places. One is do get in touch with what I, I call your heart line. So, it's really easy to, to fall in love with some fantasy of a book, but it's another thing to really stand in love with that idea <laughs> through thick and thin. <laughs> right? It's like uh, having a crush on a book versus, exactly. versus forming a long-term There's relationship. Like, oh, yeah. You're not at all what I thought you were. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you can really find your way to, 
to just remember and just maybe just ask yourself this question. Like, I am devoted to writing a book that blank. And you fill that in for yourself in a really genuine, genuine way. It's just between you and your book. And you write that down somewhere and just kind of reconnect with that every morning or every midnight or every time you are practicing drafting into your book. And that just really reminds you what this is for because we can get really thrown off center once it does come time to pitch the book and marketing and all that jazz. We really have to stay connected to our own heart line. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to really um, enjoy the process. So you honor the feeling, but then you also honor the process and practice. And so we, um, we have a saying that just came up once in a retreat I was leading when um, somebody was really resisting crafting. And uh, so we say draft to discover, craft to design. Mm, mm-hmm. So if you can approach your book, Corey, um, I assume it has something to do with artists, maybe the abundant artist, mm-hmm. the bohemian artist syndrome and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And I, I just love, I love what you're doing. So I would... Uh, uh, just to keep the momentum going, draft to discover what you don't know about your subject. Because mm-hmm. if you write only what you already think you know, it's not going to be very captivating to you or to your audience. <laughs> so keep in that state of openness and curiosity. So every morning, don't sit down, Corey, and say, I'm going to write my book. You'll just be paralyzed. So instead, say, this morning, I'm going to draft into this question. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think I mentioned to you before in a previous conversation that I started writing this book uh, almost a year and a half ago and uh, got about 30,000 words into it and then just stopped. Um, I was literally almost at the finish line of the first draft mm-hmm. and and I just stopped because I I started thinking about, you know, all the other books that are similar to what I want to do and how they're so much better and I don't really have anything new to say and mm. uh, and I just froze and uh, the manuscript sat in my computer for probably six or nine months before I went to a, I went to a conference and I was talking with some other friends and they were like, when's your book coming out? <laughs> and then they really pushed me and I was lucky because they, they, they were enthusiastic about the idea and, and felt like I had, you know, they encouraged me. Um, <clears throat> and, and so now that I'm back in the middle of, of writing it again and I, and I have a deadline, uh, which is really helpful by the way, <clears throat> uh, it's sitting down and seeing what I wrote a year and a half ago and going, Oh, some of this is actually pretty good. <laughs> 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 and That's and and then good. also going oh you know this is terrible and let's take this out and all that but uh it, it is the the process of discovery is pretty fun and i think that's a really wise observation yeah i love i first of all my heart just was like dropping down to my feet as you were describing your story uh, because so many people with whom i've worked have been there i was there before uh, the journey from the center to the page sold with Penguin, I was just racked with doubt and like, who am I to write this and all this stuff. <clears throat> so my heart just like dropped when you were talking about that feeling. But what, um, what I want to reflect back that I want the listeners to hear is that you, you did draft to discover, like you got 30,000 words out, which is a great place. The second thing is inevitably 
most of us will freeze at some point, whether this is your first book or your fifth or your tenth, and you get stuck in the middle. Um, and, and, and doubts come up for all kinds of reasons. And I've interviewed a lot of top-notch authors and asked them the question, like, which book did you think you were just not going to make it through and fulfill its promise? And inevitably they're like, oh, every one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it's important to normalize that and know that it's part of the, part of the quest of, of shaping this book. Um, but the other thing I want to reflect back to you is you did, you did a really cool thing, which is um, you reached out to your pack. You know, it's what we call in Tracking Wonder. You, you reached out to your wild pack, a group of people who are really going to run with you on the ideas and not just give you false hope, but give you genuine encouragement. So when those questions come up for, for listeners, like, who am I to write this book? And, oh, somebody's already written my book. Because believe me, when the journey from the center to the page came out, I heard from about three authors like, damn, you wrote my book. Or, you know, it's like, ah, I was like putting these things together. And then, you know, a couple of them went on to write their own book. It was not, you know, I didn't write their book. And they wrote back later, like, I realized you didn't write my book. I still had my book to write. So you can only write your book. And so there are a couple of things you can do when you get in the middle. And one is to acknowledge what distinct heritage you bring to the subject. So that's a real distinguishing point. Um, what fresh angle do you bring? Which leads me to the next thing. Once you've got like a, a creative mess that we all need to create, then you can take the next step, which is trying to distill your book into what I call the singular elegant idea. And this is a, a real game changer. This is like what led one business consultant uh, I've been working with who's actually about to launch his book um, within the next month. Um, a couple of years ago when we started working together, he just got so cracked open to this work and started playing a whole different game in his business. And he used a singular elegant idea model after a VIP day we had to pitch some of his new signature workshops that arose out of our work on his book. And he emails me, he's like, wow, holy cow. Your framework just brought me $80,000 in billable hours doing the work <laughs> nice. I want to do. And then he emails me back a week later, make that $120,000. Wow. So, yeah. so this framework's really, it's simple and uh, really powerful. And so the singular elegant idea is composed of the, the, and you can think about this now, Corey, your problem, your premise, and your promise. Now, where... Most of us like to start, regardless of genre, is we like to start with the premise. And if we're writing a nonfiction book, we just like we want to start with the cool idea that we have. But <laughs> there needs to be a necessity for that premise to be compelling and captivating. So that's why we often we can start with the premise, but then we, we pull back and we say, okay, well, what's the prevailing problem? that the premise of your book is responding to. Mm -hmm. So uh, would an example be good? Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Okay, okay. so um, I'm just looking at my bookshelf, and uh, I just pulled off uh, the Heath Brothers book, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. Okay, so we know that the subject already is about change, right? So you look at your book, and you're like, okay, so what's, what's the subject? What's the problem with that subject? Well, the problem with change that the Heath brothers identified is that 
it's really hard to make lasting changes in our companies, communities, lives. And an elaboration on that problem, as they identified the prevailing problem, is we have conflicting cognitive systems, the rational mind and the emotional mind. This really creates a lot of tension in us when we're trying to change things in our lives and in our businesses. So there's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. Following me, mm-hmm. so that makes it really compelling when they say, actually, if you can overcome this tension between your emotional and rational mind, you can have really profound change. That's their premise, and then the promise is what their book actually promises to deliver. So, does that give you some ideas then? For like, yeah, it does. It really does. Um, and I think I have, you know, for for my book, I think I have yeah. a pretty good handle on that. But I know that a lot of the people listening are going to say. You know, well, if you're an artist and you're going to write a book uh, about art or a children's book, you know, how do I identify? You know, I'm not yeah. solving a business problem. Yeah, yeah. So it's how good. do I? What's the, what's the problem there? How do I identify the problem and the premise there? It's really a great question. I get it all the time, uh, and I always start with business books because that's a lot of what I work with with thought leaders. But um, but I also work with a lot of memoirists, and uh, because I have a five year old little girl. I'm always, uh, unfortunately, over-reading story structure in children's books. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, there's the disruption. And my wife say, be quiet, just read the story. So so, um, a lot of children's stories, I've been wanting to write about this, a lot of children's stories follow a very universal form. And it's not a formula, it's a universal form that we're pretty much wired for. So... The problem in a children's book, uh, you focus on on the protagonist, the little boy, the little girl, the dragon, the monkey, uh, whoever the protagonist is. And the protagonist is usually somebody that's, you know, going to experience a little change maybe or something exciting happens, you know, a few pages into a children's book. So the problem actually is is quite often just like the, the prevailing ordinary world, like Tiffany... Uh, Tiffany couldn't stand the way her father told stupid jokes. You know, and this is kind of you know, the, the world is hard for children. That's <laughs> right. And so, you know, there's the prevailing problem. Until one day, she discovered that she likes to tell jokes herself. You know, and so then there's suddenly a new thing that happens. And so, in children's books, the premise is like that new thing that happens that sends the little girl off on a journey. Uh, so, um, I'm trying to think, oh, Knuffle Bunny is, uh... Oh, the Knuffle Bunny, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it Knuffle or Nuffle? I have no idea. <laughs> so, so, right, the prevailing, the prevailing problem is just really, it's just the ordinary world where they're going to do the laundry and so forth. The father puts the, throws the Knuffle Bunny in the dish, in the, uh, laundry, the, the washer. Big disruption, the big problem is when the little the little baby recognizes what's happened, and that's that's the that's that's where the actually the premise begins because that's really where the the journey happens and so forth. So it can be just that simple in a children's story, just to divide up. Okay, what happens at the beginning is kind of ordinary, and then what's the big disruption that happens? And there you've got a prevailing problem or ordinary world, and then a disruption. That leads you with the premise. Uh, with memoir, it's the same. It's it's or it's very similar. I could look at just about any jacket copy or some of the memoirs with whom I've worked or studied, and break down a similar problem, premise, and promise. That does the value of this is it does two things. When you're in the middle, it helps you have a north star. 
to go back and see, okay, how am I going to get back through this book and how am I going to revision it? And so the singular elegant idea works as a North Star for you. And it's a rigorous process for a lot of people. Some people call it um, the PPP university. It's the problem premise promise university because <laughs> you really come, come back, coming back and back and distilling and distilling. But once you do it, then you're really clear about now what your book is about. The second thing it does for you is it helps you pitch the book really clearly, whether it's in a book proposal or to somebody you meet or to people on your crowdfunding campaign or to readers. If you're writing your own book jacket copy, it helps you really, in a compelling way, write what your book is about, your singular elegant idea. Without that problem, you've got no heart line to your readers. Nobody really cares about your premise with that problem. <laughs> so, yeah, how interesting. Yeah. Wow. Writing a book is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, but so is having a business, right? Yep. So is yep. being a parent. Yep. <laughs> so is anything that we really care about. It's complicated. It can be complex, but there are some relatively simple frameworks that can um, – that can help you navigate those complications. And that's really what I've done in my years of working with authors is developed a variety of frameworks and strategies that don't do away with the complications, but help people really kind of, you know, as we say, live the quest and really find their way through it. And there's just been profound, profound results um, because of these strategies. Well, two things come to mind. Uh, one, I think that a lot of what you're talking about the the, the problem, the premise, or the what, what what did you say? The problem, sure. the premise, the problem. And the- so there's the prevailing problem. Mm-hmm. So this is really where the author identifies what's ha- what's happening with the subject, or in children's stories, or fiction, mm-hmm. or memoir. It's the prevailing problem, or the ordinary world of the protagonist. The problem, and then the premise, the- and the promise. You got it. Yeah. All right. Okay. The problem, the premise, and the promise seems like a pretty good framework for building any business. Yeah. Not just writing a book. Exactly. <laughs> that's, and that's in part what our um, – so we have uh, an art mark uh, approach for developing brand identities for, for uh, businesses and creatives and artists. And we have an art mark learning expedition, and we also have a really great consulting team. Uh, that helps individuals and small organizations develop their identity. Very, very similar parallels, exactly. Uh, in fact, we, ha- we apply the singular elegant idea to people's um, brand identities as, as well as even to their offers to really get clear on how they, how they uh, frame their offers too. Well, this is powerful, powerful stuff. Um, Jeffrey, would you, would you mind? I know you have a program coming up uh, mm-hmm. in, in May, I think, mm-hmm. that I think a, a number of my listeners might be interested in. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about that? Sure, sure. And I'd love to uh, talk with your listeners. really appreciate your, your mentioning this. So it's called Your Captivating Book. And it's a six-month uh, author mentorship program. And it's, it's pretty distinct. Uh, and that it truly is a mentorship program. It helps helps you own your writing practice, and then it teaches you how to distill your book's driving premise, as we've just been discussing. It helps you shape 
it's engaging reading experience. So I talked about draft to discover and then craft to, des- to design. And so you can really show you how to custom approach crafting reading experiences for your readers from beginning, middle to end, and then help you think and act like a publishing collaborator, regardless of which path to publish you take. Awesome. So we thank you for, for that and for all the resources and ideas you've provided here uh, in the in the show notes for this episode over at theabundantartist.com. We will have links to your site, the program you just mentioned, and, and the rest of the, the notes for this session. Uh, Jeffrey, any, anything else that you want to add? What's the tentative title of your book? It's The Abundant Artist. It is. What's the title of my book? Uh, okay, it is. Yeah, it is the abundant artist. How to sell art online and live a creative life on your own terms. There you go. Cool. I'm looking very forward to that because I know a lot of people who are ready to read it. Awesome. Well, I hope it does well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Corey. It's been a delight. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. Bye bye. That was a lot of fun to re-listen to. I'm really glad I got to share this interview with Jeffrey Davis with you. If you want to find out more about his program that he mentioned, Your Captivating Book, go to theabundantartist.com slash podcast 10.